Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We are getting after it today. Hey, I've got a quick confession to make. Uh, Last week we talked about pride coming before the fall and just the the fact that sometimes we get excited, we, we start to feel a little proud of something and then trouble comes. And, and I, I had a scenario of that. About a month ago, I stood up here and bragged on you guys because giving in September was really, really good. And then giving in October was really not good. And so and I just wanna encourage you. And if, as you're coming to the end of year, uh, end of year giving uh, really is a time for uh, any nonprofit, but churches especially, to kind of lean in there. And, and a lot of our giving comes in at the end of the year. And so wanna encourage you just as you, maybe to go back and look at, kind of where you've been through the year and just say, and did you give what you intended to give as you started out uh, 2018, as we come to the end of the year, I mean, what's God put in your heart to be a part of? And we'd just love to invite you into that. And I uh, want you to know that that makes a significant difference in the life of our church. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to sit under uh, your word. Father, I pray that we would lift it up above us, that we would not um, weigh it, but that we would allow it to weigh our lives. And um, Father, we just ask that your spirit would be at work in us to transform us, to, uh, to shape and mold the desires and cravings of our heart, to make them desire and crave not less, but more. Father, more of you, more of your mission, more of your kingdom, more of your presence in our lives, in our city, and in our world. Father, we pray it through your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in the book of James. If you got your Bibles, love for you to turn there. Uh, let me tell you about a couple of assumptions that I'm making as I start today. One, I am assuming that you want to know what God has to say about your life. I'm assuming that, that on a day that's this cold, in a, in a morning that you wake up and it'd be easy to want to just kind of curl up under those blankets, but you pressed out. You decided to, to pry those blankets off, to step out into the cold, uh, to kind of rally your kids and get them up and fight with your family to get them here. And whether you're here 10 minutes late or not, you made it. So well done, good job. But I'm assuming there's a reason why you wanted to be here. And I'm assuming partially at least that that's because you wanna know what the Bible has to say about your life. That, that you are coming desiring to grow, desiring to uh, to understand what, what God's best for you and for your family would be. Does that sound about right? All right, well, today we're gonna talk about money. Uh, sermons about money sometimes make people squeamish. And so they, they push back a little bit. Sometimes we think, man, I don't know if I really wanna do that. And uh, I think, honestly, I think that's a little bit unfair because when I look at the scriptures, scriptures talk about finances and talk about our money over and over and over. Now, let's be honest, like there are some jokers out there that try to milk churches and uh, and people on, watch on television for a jet or a pet tiger or something like that. But I mean, most of the churches I know are not operating in any of those realms. Most of the churches I know are, are churches that wanna make a difference in their city and that are desiring to do that. And so as we come to talk about money, and I want you to know Jesus talked a ton about money. Jesus really um, focused on this issue an awful lot. Why? Because at, at the core, money and a conversation about money is really a discipleship question. It's really a question more about your own heart and your own soul and what's going on within you. 
And, and the reason I think the Bible and the reason I think Jesus talks so much about money is because this is one of the key battlegrounds that, that, uh, that take place or in which our heart is kind of exposed and we have to do battle over our heart's attention to give it to the things that God desires us to give it to. So we're gonna be in James chapter five today. And here's what, uh, we're gonna look at kind of a strange passage here in James as we come to uh, kind of chapter five and get towards the end of this book. Um, man, this is kind of, a, kind of a dark passage in some ways. But as we begin to look at this, what I want you to do, today, or what I'm, what I'm gonna do today is I wanna show you what kind of people that James is talking about. And then we're gonna look and say, what kind of lessons can we learn from their mistakes and then we're gonna come around at the end and say, what, what is, kind of implications does that have for our lives? And so um, what kind of people is James talking about? Uh, what implications or what lessons can we learn? And then what implications does it have for our life? That's kind of where we're going today. So James chapter five, read with me. Verse one says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, good morning and welcome to Redemption Church, right? <laughs> and James is, he's, he's not slow selling this thing. And weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the, of the laborers, uh, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, though he does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's an interesting text. It's a it's, it's a kind of a dark passage. It's one of those that, and there's some phrases in there you look at, and they kind of give you pause. They make you step back, and you think, man, where is he going to go with this? And exactly what is James getting at? Now, uh, let's be honest. Most of us checked out at the very beginning, right? When you heard that, that opening phrase, come now, you rich, you go, oh man, I'm, I'm in the clear. Like that clearly doesn't relate to me. So I'm going to step back and just see how you mow everyone else down because this obviously doesn't relate to me. Jeff, if you knew what my credit card bill was, you'd know that no really rich person could owe that much money. And so clearly this, this passage doesn't, doesn't really relate to us. And so, man, why don't we just go home? Y'all wanna go lunch? Like there's nothing for us to learn here, right? And I, I don't think that's really what it's saying. But several years ago, I went to India and it rocked me. Remember being in a car and we drove for about 45 minutes. And as we drove, there was blue tarp villages of tents. And out of those tents came little children that were filthy. And there'd be eight or nine people in a family living underneath one little tarp tent in the middle of a dirt field with refuse running down the streets. And then you'd see uh, cinder block kind of walls set up with partitions that designated kind of apartments in the slums of Delhi. And as I drove through, uh, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. It's like nothing I'd ever smelled, to be honest. And it, it took me back. And I remember watching, I remember as I was going to teach there, one of the, the headmaster of the school that I was teaching at, uh, he had some day laborers that were working at his house and they were laying bricks in his driveway. And as they laid bricks in his driveway, they were there when we left in the morning and they were there when we got back at night. So they'd been there like 10 or 12 hours. And I remember asking him, I said, how much, how much do you pay those guys for, for a day? And he says, oh, we give them a good wage for, for India. He said, they make like a dollar fifty a day for hard labor all day long. 
And uh, it took me back. And I remember thinking, you know, I may not feel rich in some circles, but in India, man, they look at all of us as rich. They see the wealth that we all have. And, and I think there's, wealth is really something that is uh, somewhat comparative. It's kind of relative to where you are and what you are. Most of us, though, what I find is uh, when, you, when you think about who's rich, usually what you think about is whoever's just ahead of you, right? When you say, okay, who are the rich in our society? It's always, what's well, the people that make just a little more than I do. Like, it's not me. It's always the next guys up. And so we begin to think about, it's just the way we think about money and the way we, and really it's hardwired in our country. We live with a sense that success and money and notoriety, that these are all the goals of life. They're the things that bring happiness. Uh, we, are, we have a right to the pursuit of happiness and we really need to seek those things because and that's where the real life or the rich life or the good life is really found. And we're bombarded with that message. I mean, we're coming into Christmas season, right? And so your kids are gonna be told what? Go and make a list of all the things you want. And there's an implicit thing in there that says, because those are all the things that'll make you happy until like January 15th. And then you're gonna want more, right? And we understand that with our kids, but it's true with us too. We get commercials that come our way. It's great now because you have DVR and you can skip them all, but they're still there screaming at you, telling you that you need all this stuff. And if you have all this stuff, you're gonna find some kind of significance. The Bible repeatedly though offers us warnings about money. The Bible says that it's a serious danger to our discipleship and to our spiritual health and wholeness. And so that's what we're gonna look at today. Uh, wealth is a great gift, but it comes with great risk and great responsibility. This is, I, I think, the message we're gonna see in this passage out of James. Wealth is a great gift, but it comes with a great risk and great responsibility. Now, as you get into James, it's interesting. It isn't just a blanket condemnation of all wealth. It really is a condemnation of the misuse of wealth. When he talks about the rich here, he actually, in the context of James, is talking about a very particular group of people and a very particular scenario and situation that took place in their context. I remember that James was written to the people that had been scattered throughout the nations. And so these were people that no longer could live in their homeland. They had been scattered and were living kind of as outsiders, kind of as people who were spiritual and ethnic outsiders, which also in that culture especially made them financial outsiders. And so oftentimes they were poor. And so in the, the scenario in which they lived, they didn't have the connections and the relationships to kind of work their way up the financial rungs of the ladder in order to arrive at the top. And so they were kind of on the outside. And the rich here is really aimed at the people that are oppressing or pointing them down. These are, uh, and because we're gonna see about the judgment that comes later, these are non-Christian rich people who are actually um, oppressing and abusing those who are poor Christians. And so it's condemning a very particular group of rich. In fact, when he uses the word rich, this is kind of a, a code word in the New Testament for when it says you rich people and that kind of a, there's kind of a tone of voice that comes to it. It's kind of a spiritual code word for those who have rejected God and have sought everything in this world to take advantage of others. And so there's, they're those that are experiencing the judgment of God. And so that's kind of where we, where we start the passage here and kind of where we begin looking at this. Now it's interesting, verse one, you notice he condemns those particular rich and by extension, kind of anyone that lives like them. Then he goes on and explains why they've been rejected. Verse two, you notice in verse two, he, that it says that they've hoarded their possessions, verse, uh, verses two and three. Verse four, they defrauded those that worked for them. Verse five, they are self-indulgent and over the top in their expenditures. In verse six, they oppress Christians 
through the power of their wealth and their influence. So James is writing these Christians and trying to encourage them saying, in some way, in some sense, he's saying, look, the, I, God sees the way you're being pressed down by those that are above you. God recognizes the hardship you're going through. God recognizes the difficulty of everything you're suffering. And, and he's also giving them a warning saying, but don't think that if you just switched roles and you became on top financially, that that would solve all your problems because it's not really gonna solve, it hasn't really solved the problems of these people. In fact, it's created an awful lot of problems for them. So you notice when he says weep and wail, that's, that's kind of Old Testament prophecy language. It really goes back to kind of this prophetic judgment that's taken place where someone's prophesied that these, this group of people has been rejected by God and they're gonna suffer. And so he calls them to weep and wail. And this kind of sets the stage for what we're talking about. What is it they need to weep and wail over? Verses two and three. You notice that uh, it's gonna give us three kinds of possessions and three kinds of destructions. What are the possessions that it mentions there? It gives us three of them. It says their riches, their clothes, their gold and silver. And so there's kind of these three big broad categories. It says these people have hoarded and stored up good stuff for themselves. It's their riches, their clothes, and their gold and silver. But you notice each one of those has a corresponding destruction that goes with it. And so the riches have rotted uh, the, the, the clothes have been eaten by moths and the gold and silver have corroded. And so what he's saying is, look, they've hoarded up all this treasure, but there's kind of a sarcastic side to it, right? You've hoarded up all this treasure that's kind of rotten. Like you ever gone into the pantry and like you just, you really need a piece of bread for something and you open up the bread and you pull it out and there's mold on it. And what's the first thing you say? Don't say it out loud. No, but like you come in there and you go and you see it and you just think, you're just like, oh, I want a sandwich. I need something. There's nothing to eat. I go in and grab a loaf of bread. I pull it out and there's just mold all over it. And you're just like, oh, I just, and you just go throw it away. That's kind of the image he wants you to get is they've hoarded all this stuff that they think is good stuff. And when they go to get it, it's really not gonna be what they wanted at all. And so they're, everything they have is really experiencing some kind of degradation or, or it's falling apart in some kind of way. Now it's interesting, gold and silver are, are known and they're kind of uh, appreciated, especially because they, they're something that's not supposed to be corroded. And yet here he says, even your gold and silver is corroded, which makes it worthless. And so you're hoarding all this stuff and in the midst of it, it's being judged and it's not gonna give you really what you want. Clothes uh, in the Bible oftentimes are singled out as kind of this especially nice thing because most people in that world only had one set of clothes. And so they didn't have extra clothes that they stored up in closets and big wardrobes and all this stuff. They didn't have racks of extra shoes and different things. And so if for someone to have multiple uh, sets of clothes to choose from on any given day was a sign of extreme wealth and extravagance. Now, I've got this rule that if I haven't worn something in 12 months, I usually like to get rid of it. And that sounds really kind of good, like just clean my closet out. You know, you, just, you know, stuff just piles up and you look and you go back and go, did that shirt ever fit? Or did I ever like that at all? And so you, just, you gotta get rid of those things. So, man, if I haven't worn it 12 months, I like, to, I like to just offload it, go give it away to someone, do something else with it. But you know, that's a sign of extreme luxury, really. Because around the world, most people don't get to make decisions like that because they don't have a choice. They wear what they have because it's the only thing that they have. What here he says is you've got so many clothes that there's some stored up that the moths are eating and you didn't even notice because it's just excess. For, this, for these guys. He goes on to say that they've laid up treasure. They've stored it up. These are, these are hoarders. And so they've got all this stuff that they have to sort and organize and make sure that it fits somewhere within their realm. But you notice he says that they've sorted it up for the last days. 
And the last days are a day of judgment. It's time when, uh, when, when Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge them. And so he's saying you've stored it up, but it, you've stored it up for a purpose that it's not going to help you in whatsoever. Verse seven, he says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, meaning Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna make things right. And so whatever you're depending on, you're gonna have to answer to him for. But if you're depending on him, he's gonna actually make you right. We talked about two weeks ago that if you humble yourself, he'll exalt you. When Jesus comes back, it's when that's gonna happen. He says, but if you're hoarding up all your stuff for the last days, then you're gonna have a different experience. Now, mentioning that they're storing up stuff, um, really what he's saying is, you're just being foolish. You're, you're, you're storing up, you're spending all this time and energy doing all this stuff. And in the end, it's going to amount to nothing whatsoever. Don't be fixated on something that's not gonna help you in the face of death. And it's not gonna help you in the face of judgment because none of that stuff goes with you in the end. Um, you know, I was thinking about this and it's like a picture of uh, someone stacking up piles of cash. You know, they've just got stacks of cash and they're arranging it in the room and getting it all there. But the house is on fire in another part of the house and eventually it's gonna come. And why are they wasting time stacking up stuff that's just gonna burn? That's sort of the image he wants you to get in, in this passage. So not only that, verse four, it actually gets worse. The same forces that rot and ruin uh, your, your goods are also gonna, it says, rot and ruin your, yourself, that they are going to suffer. And in verse four, we see that their situation's even more dire. Why? It says that the wages of the laborers they've held withheld by defraud. What does that mean? So they have workers that go out. When it talks about mowing the grass or harvesting the fields, these were the kind of the day laborers that would go and harvest the fields. That, and so these rich people would bring them in. They'd harvest the field for them and they'd do that. At the end of the day, they're supposed to pay them a wage. It said they would hold back their wage and not pay them. So they would put in a full day's work and then they wouldn't pay them what they had earned and they'd hold it back by defrauding them and actually cause... Uh, these people uh, great difficulty. Now, in the Old Testament, there's actually laws against this. Leviticus 19:13 says, "The wages of the hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning." That's an interesting thing to say in a law, right? Why is it that the that, that the the boss, the master, the field owner couldn't withhold that money overnight until the next morning to pay them? It's because they had to have it to survive. They needed it. They worked that day. They needed the money they earned from that day to buy food to feed their family so they could survive that day because they didn't have another day's worth saved up. They were, they were living day to day. And so what, the, what Leviticus says, what the Old Testament law said was, don't you withhold until morning in your luxury and in your excess? Give to them what they've earned for the day because they need it to suffice. And so it's an offense to God. It's an offense to your neighbor if you don't give them what they've earned because they don't have anything stored up and hoarded for another day. They don't have anything being eaten by moths. They don't have anything corrupted and rotting. They're living for that one meal and they need you. And it's, a, it's easy in our brokenness to value possessions over people. And you see this throughout human history all the time, that people who have lived self-indulgent and self-focused lives continually take advantage of those that, that are less fortunate. And then it inevitably leads to the abuse and the oppression of others. And it's not hard to step back and look at any history lesson uh, through, through, through our world and know and see the places where that's happened over and over and over. Here you notice it says, uh, it's interesting, it says that their wealth testifies against them. Meaning in a courtroom of law, all the stuff you've hoarded up whenever you're defrauding the guy who really needs something is a testimony, it's a witness against you. And so the, the judge has got stacks and mountains of evidence 
against this group of people because they've not paid some of their workers what they owed. Instead, they've hoard, hoarded and, and stacked up stuff for themselves. Notice it also says that God has already heard that, um, that when they, their wealth increased at the expense of others, it says that it rose up to God's ears, that he heard that the Lord of hosts, which should be translated the Lord of armies, that this, this cry uh, that of these people has gone up to them as they understand what it is, um, as the Lord understands exactly what it is that's going on. Verse five, man, this is, this is tough stuff, right? Verse five, he says, um, you, have lived on, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. When he says on the earth, he's focusing on one particular thing. Like you've lived for today, you've lived for the here and now, you've lived on the earth with indulgence but not so later, because you fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, meaning judgment's gonna come. And day of slaughter, the, the image there really is, it's like fattening up a pig and getting it ready for slaughter. He's saying it's self-destructive behavior when you're gorging your heart on stuff. So it's like a pig fattening himself. You know the thing about fattening a pig is you don't have to work hard to fatten a pig up. You just let the pig do what the pig wants to do, right? You just don't limit it. You just let it go. What he's saying is, I'm letting you go do what you want to do, and all that is just fattening you up for the day of slaughter. You know what you get on the day of slaughter? Bacon. And bacon's always good, right? I mean, that, that, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Um, bacon's always good unless you're the pig. Unless you're the pig, bacon is always good. Uh, with some health qualifications in there, Right? But when you see what he's talking about here is these are, he's comparing these guys to an animal that's being fattened for a day of slaughter. And he says, you're hoarding yourself on your stuff in this world and it's just going to end in your own self-destruction. Verse six says that God sees it as a personal affront. It says they're acting against a righteous person. There's some discussion about who this righteous person is. Is that referring to the righteous one, Jesus? Is it referring to the righteous ones of this group of people? And we're not exactly sure even who James is talking about, but here's what we know. When it talks about someone that's working against a righteous person, they're working against the, the activity of God. They're working against the name of God. They're working against the purposes of God. And so it's someone that God says in, in their taking advantage of these people and oppressing them, these Christians, that these non-Christian wealthy people are actually um, working against God and God's gonna hold them to account even though it didn't get fixed in that day. Notice he says they do not resist you. I think it's a fascinating thing because like Jesus, he did not resist when he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's saying these righteous people are also unable to resist them. But, verse seven, he tells the, the poor Christians that are being taken advantage of, be patient. You wait, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back and he's gonna judge those who make themselves at odds with the Lord. The Lord is waiting. He's heard their cries. He is a Lord of hosts, a Lord of armies. He's powerful and there's nothing that can resist him. And when he comes, he's going to make things right and he's gonna make things, all things new. And so be patient, wait, because things will be made right. And if you're one of those that's made yourself an enemy of God, that made yourself an enemy of the people of God, and you need to realize that you're building your own self-destruction in terms of your life. So where do we go with this? What are the lessons we learned from this kind of a dark, kind of heavy passage, right? I think when you see um, what, what, uh, what James is saying, he's, he's telling them to, to be careful with their money. And so as we begin to think about what this means for us, I, mean, I think, 
It helps us to approach this kind of like uh, a football, football team or a basketball team that, and they've played a game, they've seen a game, and then they go into the film room and they are gonna stop, stop and kind of assess the film. And they're gonna watch the film and break it down. And they're gonna look at what were the mistakes that were made so that they can correct the mistakes that are there. Uh, any of you had ever had to do that? Any of you have been in a film room as a football player, basketball player, something like that? Chris Gray, I know you have. I, I know you've done it. Uh, so uh, as you think about kind of this, reviewing this, man, there's a, there's a football team here in our state that I think could use a little film work right now, right? Like they, they, they could use a little film work on their defense and they need to correct some things if things are gonna get better. And if they don't, but the thing is, if you can recognize the mistakes, you can identify them, but unless you make adjustments, unless you do anything different, the next game is gonna be exactly like the last game, right? And so what do we wanna do? We wanna look at the mistakes that these, this rich group of people have made. We wanna identify them, but then we also wanna do something different. We wanna shift the course of our lives so that we don't make the same mistakes that they make. So I said earlier, wealth is a great gift, but it comes with great risk and great responsibility. And so, and we need to own the great risk that we all carry, and we need to own the responsibility that's ours. And so as we do first, let's talk about the risk. And money is useful, right? I mean, you have bills to pay, uh, you know exactly what it's like to have to find money to pull it out and to make a payment and pay something off that you owe. And we all live in this world. We all kind of live week to week, month to month, making, making life work. And most of us, as I talk to most of you and as I talk to people in our city, and let's just, most of us are just trying to figure out how to make life work. Like we, we, don't, we don't even have our, our, our goals set insane, insanely high. We just want to figure out, man, how do I, kind of make as much of this thing work and find as much joy and happiness along the way as I can get. And we're just trying to make things work. But we need to recognize, though money is useful, it's also dangerous. And there's a natural bent in our posture that, that kind of steers us in the direction of self-indulgence or of focusing on self. And we need to learn and work to be content because discontentment is, is toxic to our souls. Anytime we're living in a way that's just discontent with the way things are, and there's a toxicity that just kind of pervades our heart and our soul and, and corrodes us on the inside. First Timothy 6 says this, and one of the more significant passages about money, um, kind of a long thing, so you have to read it with me. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and, and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, through, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and, been pierced, and pierced themselves with many pains. See, this isn't dangerous just to the rich. It's dangerous to those who desire to be rich. It's dangerous to those who want more. It's dangerous not just to those who are the haves, but it's dangerous to the have-nots that wish they were the haves. And so you, you notice the phrases that Timothy, or that Paul mentions here in this book, and as he does, so many of them have to do with the heart, right? Uh, look at the phrases he used. He says, those who desire to be rich. He talks about the love of money. He talks about through this craving. Those are all words that are more internal. They don't actually have to do with all the stuff. It just says there's this kind of internal drive and push and desire that propels us to run after those things. And he says, that's a dangerous place for us to live. Why? 
because it says it leads you into harmful, it's harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It says because of these, this craving, it says many people have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pains. They've wandered away and pierced themselves. They've hurt themselves. And, and before we're too quick to dismiss this and think that none of us struggle with any of these things, I think it's interesting that the Bible also tells us that our hearts are deceptive. That oftentimes we, we have a hard time even discerning our own hearts. And when you're dealing in this realm of in our cravings and our desires and our hungers, our yearnings, our wants, and it's hard for us to even recognize all the things that are, that are driving us on the inside. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand his own heart? So I think we need to come to this and just recognize, and if the Bible over and over tells us money is dangerous, and the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceptive, there probably should be some humility in the way we think about this. There probably should be a word of caution as we enter into this to not thinking that we've got it all together. This is the risk. Many have wandered away and pierced themselves with pains. And you've seen friends that have done this. You know people that have done this. And what we see in the scriptures is we're all at risk as well. The problem's in, the, in our hearts. Do you know only the gospel can rescue us from this. How's the gospel tied up to our contentment? See, I think the, what we have to understand is this is a, really, it's at the very heart of Christianity. The very heart of Christianity is not that we give to God, but how much God has given to us. The very heart of Christianity is, that, is not that we love God, but we love him because he first loved us. He's the initiator. He's the one that moves first. He's the one that comes toward us. And because he's given us to us so generously, then we're freed to be content and we're freed to be generous. And so when you think about this, how did God love us? Well, he made us. He gives us life. He gives us breath every morning when we wake up. He's given us a, a world of beauty and goodness to enjoy. He's given us a world with laughter and music and turkey and family and friends and things that are good to enjoy. And God's given us all of this and placed us in this world that's perfectly made to sustain our lives and to bring us good. And so he's given us that. He's also, whenever we, whenever we ignored God, even though he gave us all those things and became self-absorbed, God still sent his son to rescue us and to remind us of really who we are and what we were meant to be and how we were meant to live. And he sent his spirit to live within us to, in order to, to shape our desires and help us learn to be content with the things that he's given and learn to enjoy life as he meant it to. And he gave us, uh, the Bible says that, that he will withhold nothing from us like a father doting on his little girl and saying, whatever you want, dear. That's the picture the Bible has of God says he won't withhold anything from you. And if we being broken know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our heavenly father who's perfect know how to give good gifts to us? So if you start there and recognize in the very heart of Christianity is that God has given everything to you, there ought to be something that goes, I can rest in him. I can be content. I can... I, I can let go of some stuff. And we all need to understand that the gospel should propel us towards contentment. You know, it's, I was thinking about this this week as I kind of reflected just on, on my life and kind of where we've been. You know, when Nan and I first got married, uh, it's interesting, we, I was thinking about this, we lived off 18K a year. 
Like that was the full sum of what we made. It was $18,000. We got married right out of college and we lived right off I-35. You could hear the semi-trucks going down the highway from our apartment. And we lived in this little, I guess 454 square foot apartment, this tiny little thing. And as we, as we lived there, we, just, we didn't have a TV. We didn't have a TV for the first five or seven years. Um, but we were content to live there. And we, like, we, we're not any happier now than we were then. We have a lot more stuff. But we were, we were content in that moment. And then as I think about kind of life and you think about that, we have this envelope system and we get our check or our paycheck at the end of, or the beginning of the month and we take it and we divide it up and we had all these envelopes that were labeled, you know, tithe, giving, or tithe and giving, meals, groceries, eating out. And we had all these things and we put it in cash. We cash our check, put it in there. And we just had to live off the cash we had in that month in order to make it work for the net, that, that entire three, four or five weeks. And so we do that every single month and we get to the end. If you ran out of an envelope, you were just out of stuff. You know what our first, our biggest fight was our first year? I may have told some of the, you this before. Uh, we wanted to go, I wanted to take her out on a date. I wanted to take my sweet wife out on a date and we were gonna really splurge and we were gonna go to Olive Garden because I was really smart because you could split a meal and get all you can eat salad and all you can eat breadsticks. And so I knew that was a good deal. As we were heading out to go on that, to head out on the date, Nan began, I saw a tear begin to come out out of her eye and, I don't understand what's going on. We're just, we're going out on a date. This is supposed to be a fun deal. Like I'm supposed to get credit for this, right? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to get bonus points for this. This is supposed to be a good thing. And she's crying and I couldn't figure out. We pulled over and she said, I don't think we have enough envelope in the envelope to go to Olive Garden. And I was like, man, I used to take you to Olive Garden all the time. She says, I know, but that was when it was your money, not our money. And so she was, she was in charge of the budget and she knew what we needed to do. And so she's kind of giving me pause. And so our biggest fight, I don't know, is Olive Garden still around? I don't know if I've even been in a, since then. It may have been scarred, I don't know. Uh, but but in, in the midst of that world, and we were so content and happy and young love can fill your cup and it can be enough, right? So we get in the car and we drive to Brahms and we go get a double dip cone and uh, it was cappuccino chunky chocolate came out at that time. I remember that because that was what she wanted. And so we go to get an ice cream cone and, and we, there was just enough to live off of in that little, that little season of life and we enjoyed it. And it was good. But you know, whenever you get a little bit older, then you start to get these expectations for, am I supposed to be at a different place now? Aren't I supposed to get to another place? One of the things I see over and over is there, there seems to be this kind of up to about 30, you can live pretty content with, with a little. And then after 60, I see people start to shift and get there again. They go, you know, I've kind of done the thing. I've chased all the stuff. I'm kind of tired of it. I don't really need that much anymore. And so they get simpler again. Uh, but there's this danger zone that I see as I, as I pastor people, as I look at my own eye from my, uh, my own life, from like 30 to 60, that are the earning years, the accumulating years, the years when, man, you're supposed to be making your mark. You're supposed to be working up. You're supposed to be doing your thing. And so, man, you're moving and shaking and working at it and you're chasing and seeking these things and it's really hard to be content, isn't it? And yet when I look at the scriptures and I look at this warning, I think, man, there's some things there that we need to recognize. When I see it with young couples that they do okay for a little while and then they get married and there's a sense in which, hey, now we've got to meet the expectation because now we're a family and we have to get a house and we have to move into the neighborhood and we have to do the thing. And maybe you're making 38,000 a year, but then you get a raise and you're making 52. So now you need to move from this neighborhood over to this neighborhood. And then you get a, another raise and you're making 76. And so now you need to move from this neighborhood over to the other neighborhood. And you just, you get on this rat race of chasing the stuff that you have to uh, that you want. 
And then a lot of times it's built on kind of a, a false image or a false sense of security. And so, you know, you live, you're, you're bringing in 5000 a month, but you're living off of 6500 a month. And things get upside down pretty quickly. And now you're chasing bills and you're chasing those things. And the problem with that is every time you say yes to those things, you have to say no to something else. And so if you're chasing those things, you have to say no to your spouse because you don't have time to be with her. So you have to say no to your kids because you no longer have time to be there. You have to say no to your church because you've given everything to other stuff. And how much does it take to cross over into the line of luxury? You notice it doesn't really say here, does it? What the Bible calls us to do is to be wise, to ask the Spirit for guidance, to discern our own hearts. And it doesn't give us a line and a threshold that says, oh, you just, you just stepped across the line and a buzzer goes off. Like that doesn't happen in our lives. We actually have to discern that thing and try to figure it out. Um, but you have to weigh your heart and figure out what's, what's too much. Where, where is it that you're called to live and what is it you wanna be about? Where do you wanna invest yourself? But if you continually say yes to more, then you're gonna continue to have to say no to someone else. I think the, the question that Jesus asked us to ask of ourselves is, are you gonna serve your money or is your money gonna serve you? Are you gonna become a slave to, the, to your money or are you gonna utilize your money for good? See, money is useful, but it's also dangerous. So there's a risk there. So we need to acknowledge that and own the risk. But there's also, I think the other thing we see here is that the, the answer for, for risk is contentment. The answer for the risk that money provides to our, or challenges to our soul is to be content and to trust the gospel and trust God's goodness enough that, that we're content with food and clothing and the things which God has given until the day when we go to be with him. So contentment is the answer for that. What's the answer for our responsibility? Because we said there's two things. Uh, the, the great wealth comes with great risk and great responsibility. The answer for our, for our responsibility is generosity that we would be generous people. The gospel also redirects our, our purposes in our use of money. The Bible describes kind of two different approaches to wealth. Now, what was the problem? When you think back at James 5, and so we said we wanna look at their mistakes, identify them, and then turn and shift course and live differently, right? What were the mistakes of this, uh, the rich in, verse, in, in James 5? Well, the first thing we see is that, um, was that he was a miser, he was a hoarder. He was a stingy person, right? So he didn't give to the people that he actually owed money to, the people that needed it desperately. He hoarded up and piled up and stored up and gorged his heart and all this other stuff. And so he, this was a guy that was just incredibly stingy and miserly and turned in on himself. And he was not a generous person in any way, shape or form. In fact, he was actually defrauding them. And he was, he was not just not generous, he was actually unjust in the way he dealt with, his, uh, with, with others. And so what we understand is, I mean, we need to be generous people who, who continually give to others. It's interesting in Acts 2, uh, when you look at Acts 2, and there, there's a section there where it talks about kind of churches and the ideal church. And one of the things it says is that in the midst of that church, there was no one who was in need because people were selling off their possessions and giving to any who had need. There was a sense of a common uh, a commonality there and a, a relationship there and a friendship that was there that people were generous to, to anyone that had needs within the church community because, and God had given some more because God, there were people that had less. And so that was kind of the message you see out of, out of Acts 2 in the church is that God gives some more because there's some who have needs. And so, and there's a sense in which we're, if you have, 
if you have, you're, you're able to provide and to give to others. And I love this week, um, we got a, had someone reach out to us from a, that's a local business owner and just said, man, is there anyone in your church that could use a Thanksgiving meal? And so we were able to connect some people with, uh, with, with this meal. And we're gonna be able to provide some meals for some people through a local business that just said, and God just, we just wanna be generous. There's are people that have needs in our community. And we wanna be, we want you guys as a church to be a conduit to give that to others. And we get to do that. And I love that. I love that we've got a giving tree out here where we've got families in our community that don't have enough to do Christmas. And we're gonna go grab tags and we're gonna be able to give Christmas to people. And that's people that we have, we have excess and we're gonna be able to go to give to some who don't have enough so that they can have a Christmas that we all desire them to have. And so that's the way that, that you really see this as ought to work is God gives some more so that we can help care for those who don't have enough. And so but, um, it, the other thing we see here, uh, or that we see in the, the problem with the guys in James 5 is not just that he, he hoarded and kept everything to himself, but it's that, um, and this is gonna sound strange, it's that he didn't want stuff badly enough. He actually was not greedy enough, I think, you know, Jesus takes the same idea of, of hoarding up stuff. Listen to what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus says is it's okay to want treasure. He doesn't ever say don't desire treasure. He says don't desire treasure that's gonna, don't waste your life on treasure that's gonna rot. Give your life to treasure that's gonna last forever. Give your life to something that's never gonna end. Give your life to something that's never gonna break. Give your life to something that's, for, that's forever. He says, because if you give your life to all this stuff here, your heart's gonna be stuck down here. But if you give your life to something there with the Lord, then your heart will be wrapped around him too. So according to Jesus, our desire for stuff isn't the problem. It's that we settle for stuff that's not really gonna last. And he calls us to, to desire stuff that's going to push us in a new direction. You know, money, what we see in money over and over is that it tells us something about our hearts, right? See, if, if Jesus doesn't touch your wallet, then Jesus doesn't touch your life. Like if you haven't given Jesus the password to your bank account, then you haven't given Jesus full access to your life. If, if he can't rearrange your budget, then he, he didn't have full access to rearrange your heart and your life. This is what Jesus says is where your treasure is, your heart is. And so if, if we're wrapped around all this stuff, then we're, we're not giving God every, access to everything in our lives. And if we think about the book of James, we've said over and over, that the, the theme of the book of James is that real faith really works. Uh, this passage, I think what it's saying is real faith really works on your wallet too. Like that, that's one of the areas that it, that it shows up and where God begins to, to work. And so as we think about our responsibility and what it is that we're called to do, and I wanna encourage you, let's be rich towards God. Don't waste your life on stuff that won't last, but let's be rich towards God. And Jesus also said, or Luke, Luke 12, 33 says, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And do you love that image? Give yourself money bags that don't grow old. Um, money bags for Jesus. Like there's a ministry name, right? That makes you really uncomfortable, right? That's not what some of it, but it's fascinating to me that, that the Bible doesn't say, don't desire anything. It says, but beware of the cravings and the desires of your heart that are gonna steer 
you towards stuff that doesn't last. Seek and desire money bags that they don't rot. They're, they're kind of spiritual money bags that are gonna last forever. Desire treasure in heaven that's with the Lord, that's with him. Jesus offers this warning. Luke 12, 21 says that, that, that there's danger for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And I, I read that this week in my study. And I've not been able to get that, that phrase out of my mind. What does it mean for us to be rich toward God? To be rich to him. And he's been rich to us. He's given us everything. He's withheld nothing. He's, he's given our, his only son for us. What does it look like for us in return? Because he first loved us to love him back and just say, God, I wanna, be, I wanna live rich towards you. I wanna be generous towards you. I wanna be content with everything you've provided. And I wanna give as much as I can towards your mission and to live for that. That doesn't mean that we need to, I think, go into the holiday season feeling guilty and beating ourselves up and kind of flaying ourselves. Like there's nothing spiritual about kind of this aesthetic of I'm gonna kind of belittle myself and minimize my life. Friends, I just want you to, I just want your gaze to, I just want you to raise your gaze up a little bit and just recognize that, man, all the stuff that causes us so much stress and so much worry and so much concern, and God said he's gonna take care of us. If we have food and clothing, let's be content. Um, if you get a little more, man, buy some gifts. Buy your kids good gifts at Christmas. Enjoy it. Celebrate as a family. Have a lavish meal. Uh, enjoy the good that God has given. Uh, money can be a great gift. It's useful. But let's also live with some humility that says it, it's also risky. And it also comes with a responsibility. A responsibility to, to, to give towards those who have needs and to give towards the mission of God. But also to live contentedly and acknowledging, I mean, God has been so good to us. And let's receive that. Let's enjoy it. But let's also live humbly and desire to be with him forever, knowing that and there's a treasure that is ours someday, that one day we will be with him. And all the stuff here that we can't hold on to, it will pale in comparison and it will never measure up. You know, one of the things I pray for you that I want you to pray for me too, is just pray that we, would, that we would give our lives fully to the stuff that lasts forever. As we enter this holiday season, man, with that, let's just make that a prayer, that we would be fully investing our lives in the stuff that lasts forever. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for the life which you've given. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray that as we desire to live for you, uh, that you would um, enable us to be rich towards you. Father, out of gratitude and out of love, uh, Father, we would that we would store up treasure in heaven, that we would desire good things from you. Father, that not things that, that won't last, but things that last forever. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.